Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are a needy people who are always in need of your grace. We especially sense our need for grace when it comes to hearing and applying, understanding your word, because such things are only spiritually discerned. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would work in us now, that we would be given eyes to see your glory through your word. Father, you have promised us that your word will sanctify us and that your word will equip your people for every good work. And so, Lord God, we pray that as a result of our study of David's prayer this morning, that our own prayer lives would become stronger and more faithful to your word, more honoring to you as we look to you for all things. We ask all these things in the name of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Second Samuel chapter 7. Last Sunday we looked at the first half of Second Samuel 7. And we looked at one of the most important events in all of redemptive history when God promises to make a house for David. Remember the chapter starts off with David. He's living in his nice cedarwood house. He's looking out at the ark of God, uh, sitting in a poor little tent. And he thinks, ah, I ought to build a temple for God. But then God reveals to David through Nathan the prophet, it's not a bad idea. Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Not a bad idea, but not my will. You want to build me a house no, 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 I'm going to build you a house. When we pointed out the, the play on words there, David wanted to build God a, a temple house, uh, but God is going to establish a, a dynasty house for David, as in kings are going to come from his line, and God would establish that throne and establish that kingdom. We saw how David's biological son Solomon would fulfill those promises in uh, many senses. Uh, Solomon would rule as a king and God would establish his kingdom. Uh, Solomon would build God a house uh, as in a temple at Jerusalem. Solomon would be disciplined, disciplined for his sin. But God would not withdraw his steadfast love from him. Right, those things were fulfilled in Solomon and the line of sons that came after him. And really, we would probably conclude that the entire promise was fulfilled by Solomon and the line of kings that came after him, except for one key word. And you'll remember what that one key word was. It's the word forever. In verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Verse 16, your throne shall be established forever. That word forever necessitates a greater fulfillment than just the line of the kings of Judah. Because, well, the line of the kings of Judah didn't rule forever. It only lasted about 400 years. 586 BC, the kingdom of Judah is destroyed for good by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Now, there has to be a greater fulfillment 
Uh, that greater fulfillment was something that the Old Testament prophets pointed to over and over and over. Uh, that shoot from the stump of Jesse. That righteous branch for David. Uh, the prophecy that David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. All of that pointed to something much greater, much more forever than Solomon and the kings of Judah. All of it pointed to Jesus Christ, the son of David, the greater David, David's son, and yet David's Lord. Jesus, of whom the angel tells Mary that the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So basically, in the first half of 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells David about his plan to bring the Messiah, Jesus, who's going to rule and reign forever, whose throne is going to be established forever, to bring that Savior from David's offspring, the son of David, who would bring about God's forever kingdom for his people. Now, does David understand uh, all of the details of, of what would transpire like we do in looking back at the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? No, of course not. But we do get the sense, even in this prayer that we're going to look at today, uh, that David does understand that God is talking about something far greater than just Solomon. Look real quick at verse 19. Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. For a great while to come. It's a Hebrew word there that refers to distance. It's sometimes translated afar off. Uh, We're not talking about something that God's going to do just one or two generations down the line. We're talking about eternity, a far off, a great while to come. God is going to establish the forever kingdom of his son. And looking at verse 19, this is instruction for mankind. Now, admittedly, there's some disagreement here, but if that's the right way to translate the Hebrew, then that's David realizing that there's something much larger scale going on here than the tiny little kingdom of Judah. We're talking about a promise on the scale of the earlier promise to Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is instruction for mankind. David understands this is a promise for all of God's people for eternity. Let me just put yourselves in David's shoes for a moment here. You began the night just kind of thinking up this nice idea to build a temple for God. And God says, forget the temple, forget the construction project. I want you to consider instead my infinitely wise plan of salvation established from before the foundation of the world to bless all of my people. And I want you to consider that that's going to be fulfilled through you and your offspring. The Savior of the world is going to come through you. How do you even begin to process that? Like any plan to build the temple, uh, I'm sure it would have been grand. It would have been really involved. It would have been glorious. 
And we see that come to fruition under Solomon in 1 Kings as the temple in Jerusalem was built. But this, this is infinitely greater in like every possible dimension. David's talking about a construction project. God's talking about the redemption of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to be for him a people for his own possession. Like, like how can the, the finite human mind even begin to grasp the glory of God's infinitely wise plans? So what does David do? What does David do in light, in response to these just mind-blowing revelations? Well, I think he does pretty much the only thing he can do at this point. He prays. What else can he do but go to the Lord in praise and prayer just as the overflow of his heart? And so David goes into the tent that he pitched for the ark. And he just sits down before the ark of God. And he pours out his soul before the Lord, to use the language of 1 Samuel. Now this is to, by, by no means to knock uh, set times of prayer, right? When we're just kind of going through our list of things that uh, we ought to pray for, right? Praise God for those times of, of prayer. But I think there is something particularly wonderful about this kind of prayer, just the, the unplanned, a spontaneous outpouring of awe and wonder of the heart. Like I think many of us, maybe we've got the, the structured kind of prayer down. It's this kind of spontaneous outpouring that, that we would do well to learn here from David. But before we get to the prayer itself, I want you to look back one verse. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. That's the, the job description of a prophet, right? God gives Nathan words, right? That's verses 5 through 16. And then Nathan faithfully transmits those words to David, right? That's in verse 17. And so we might expect this next section to be a reply from David to Nathan. But it's not. I mean, I'm sure David said something to Nathan. There's some acknowledgement of his words. But David's primary response here is to God himself. And so let me just say, I think we ought to apply uh, the same idea to biblically faithful preaching. Because at the end of the day, right, to the extent that, that I or, or any other preacher uh, preach not my opinion or, or my ideas— but I'm being faithful to God's word, then it's primarily to God that you ought to reply. Look, I, I always appreciate it when you all have an encouraging word about the sermon. And, and by the way, church, you are to be commended because you are a very encouraging church. But the primary response of our hearts to the preaching of God's word should be to the Lord himself. And give him praise for how his excellent word has convicted you. Extol him for how specifically his word has spoken to your heart. Go before him in repentance when his word has cut you to the heart. Bring to him 
your desire that he would change your heart more and more to be in line with his word. Matthew Henry put it really eloquently, so I'm just going to quote him here. Quote, When ministers deliver God's message to us, it is not to them, but to God, that our hearts must reply. End quote. Well said. Let me start by reading our text, uh, this prayer uh, in its entirety, verses 18 to 29. And then I want to spend our time thinking through four characteristics of this prayer that will hopefully be helpful for us as we think about these things and hopefully apply them to our own prayer lives. So 2 Samuel 7, I'm starting in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. And there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem, to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So let's consider now four characteristics of David's prayer. I'm going to be jumping around uh, in this text a little bit, a little more than usual, but uh, I think it'll be really helpful for you if you have the actual text in front of you so that you can follow along as we jump around. Point number one, David's acknowledgement of God's greatness. Let's look at David's acknowledgement of God's greatness in this prayer. You may have noticed as we read through the prayer just now that seven times in this short passage, David addresses God using the title Lord God with G-O-D capitalized in our English Bibles. O Lord God. 
Uh, in Hebrew, that's the, uh, the title Adonai, meaning Lord, followed by God's covenant name, Yahweh. Adonai Yahweh, right? Lord God. A side note that might be interesting to some of you. Um, in our English Bibles, Yahweh is usually translated uh, or denoted L-O-R-D, all in capital letters. Uh, and so if the translators are being consistent, right, Adonai Yahweh uh, would be Lord, Lord, uh, but that would be kind of weird. And so they went with Lord God, but you'll notice that God, G-O-D, is in all capital letters because it's referring to God's covenant name. Anyway, uh, this is not like, uh, perhaps you've heard people pray and uh, they're kind of nervous or whatever it might be, and, and Lord becomes like a, like a filler word. Uh, Lord, I ask, Lord, that you, Lord, would, uh, Lord, answer, Lord, according to, Lord, your, your will, Lord. Uh, well, we shouldn't pray like that. Uh, God's titles, God's names should never be just kind of nervous repetition or, or filler for silences. And that's certainly not what David's doing here. This is intentional repetition of this particular specific name for God. Lord, God. It's a name we see a lot in the book of Ezekiel, right, later on. But at this point in the Bible, up to this point in the Bible, it's not a particularly common name. But it's a name that refers to the covenant God of Israel as master and Lord over everything. And so it's a particularly appropriate title for David to use, given everything that he has just revealed to him. By the way, we spoke last week about some of the parallels between the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, right, in terms of the, the promise of a great name and the, the promise of a blessing coming through an offspring. There's another parallel. Both Abraham and David... And their responses to God's covenant promises address him as, O Lord God, O Adonai Yahweh. And so God throughout this prayer is addressed as Adonai Yahweh, the great Lord and master and sovereign over all of his creation. He is the great God. He is incomparable. He is unparalleled. He is peerless. And maybe verse 22 puts it the best. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. If you were here last summer, you might recall that sounds a lot like Hannah's prayer from 1 Samuel chapter 2, doesn't it? 1 Samuel 2, 2, Hannah says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is no God besides you. But this isn't just for David and Hannah. And this should be the heart of all of God's children. To be quick to acknowledge God's greatness. And that's not just fundamental to prayer, right? It's essential to understanding the entirety of our relationship with God. God is truly great. And we as his children can never acknowledge that truth enough. But now in contrast, look at how David refers to himself. Ten times in this short prayer, he refers to himself as your servant. And again, that is not just meaningless repetition. Earlier in the chapter, God addresses David as my servant David. And so this is David purposefully acknowledging that simple truth. 
God is Lord over all. Oh, Lord God, I, in contrast, am but a lowly servant. Point number one, David's acknowledgement of God's greatness. Brothers and sisters, we, as God's children, we would, we would do well to have this same heart in all of our own prayers, right? in all of our own dealings with a holy God who is just all together unlike us. There is none like you. There is no God besides you. Now let's look at point number two. David's amazement at God's grace. Look again at verse 18. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? So you get the picture here. You've got the great God of the universe. You've got David, uh, the lowly, undeserving servant. Right, that was point number one. David's acknowledgement of God's greatness. But now with that stark contrast in mind uh, between who you are and who I am, what then is this amazing grace that you have showed me? Point number two, David's amazement at God's grace. And so all David can say at this point is, who am I? Who am I, O Lord God? That's not like amnesia on David's part. Like, who am I? No, it's because he knows exactly who he is. A wretched sinner in the presence of a thrice holy God that he's just dumbfounded. Who am I that you would show a wretch like me this undeserved kindness? That you would lavish a sinner like me with this abundant, amazing grace. I mean, David's not exactly a nobody in the eyes of man. I mean, he is the the king of Israel. He is a successful military general. By any human standards, he's one of the greatest men who's ever lived. But that's precisely the point. Even the greatest of men, the most accomplished of men, is nothing and is a nobody in the light of the greatness of God. Making any kindness or favor that God shows to him just an amazing mystery. It's the exact same sentiment that David expresses in Psalm chapter 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars, which you have set in place, right? Translation, God, you are great. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Translation, who am I, O Lord God? Who am I and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? That's David acknowledging that everything that he has... And everything that he's accomplished so far is all from God. Oftentimes we have this idea, I think partly from our society and culture, partly from our own prideful hearts, this idea that says, well, if I, if I just work hard enough, I can achieve anything, uh, that we are a product of our own efforts and our own diligence But you see here, David has no such pretensions. 
He knows that the only reason that a lowly shepherd boy, even with his own, within his own family, a, a complete afterthought, uh, there remains yet the youngest, but he is off keeping the sheep, that he would rise to the throne of Israel. Oh, this could only be the grace of God. Remember verse 8 from last week. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. David knows that. David, what do you have that you did not receive? Just thinking about everything that God had done for him to bring him to this point just leaves him amazed by God's grace. But David's amazement at God's grace doesn't end there. Because verse 19, even the great things that God has done thus far were but a small thing in your eyes. Because God's about to do something even greater. Right? Greater than David and greater than Solomon. Much greater than the small little kingdom of Judah. God is going to send the Messiah through the line of David. And that Messiah, Jesus Christ, would accomplish the redemption of all of God's people. A greater redemption than the Exodus which David refers to in verses 23 and 24, a redemption that the Exodus would simply point to. God's redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt, a foreshadowing of the ultimate redemption from slavery to sin that Christ would accomplish through his death and his resurrection. And that Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would be the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Every single one, for all the promises of God, find their yes in him. And he would reconcile all of God's elect to him. So that, you remember the covenant relationship, so that God might be their God and they might be his people. And if, as if that were not amazing enough, that God would do these great things in the future through David, in addition to that, David is just awestruck that God would graciously make those plans known to David. That he would let David in on what he's about to do. So that David might, in faith, embrace and rejoice in those promises. Look at verse 21. You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Like, you didn't have to tell me these things. Verse 27, for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant. Literally in the Hebrew, it's you've uncovered my ear, saying you, I will build you a house. And so we can think about this as like three levels of David's amazement at God's grace. At first, uh, David is just amazed at the grace that God has shown to him in the past to bring him to this place. Second, David is amazed that God would be so gracious to him in the future. But third, David is amazed that God would be so gracious to let David know of how gracious he's going to be to him in the future. And so David is, he's just astonished. He's stunned. He's speechless. Look at verse 20. What more can David say to you? 
This is the guy who wrote half the Psalms in the Bible. He is not one who lacks for words, even words to describe great and glorious things. But even the sweet psalmist of Israel, in response to God's abundant and lavish, unmerited favor and blessing and grace, even David, what more can I say? When God's children begin to grasp the depths, the heights, the riches of the grace that he's shown them, they can do nothing but stand amazed. David's not alone. It's the same heart that Jacob had. Look at what the patriarch says in Genesis 32. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Point number two, David's amazement at God's grace. Brothers and sisters, it is one thing to acknowledge God's greatness and your own unworthiness in contrast, but it's another to acknowledge God's greatness your own unworthiness in contrast, and then consider all the great things that God has done for you in Christ. All the grace that he has shown you and will continue to grant you in Christ. I mean, dear Christian, just think about your own life. When you were unsaved, you did nothing to merit your salvation. You just sinned and rebelled. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were a child of wrath, fast bound to hell. And yet God, by his amazing grace, saved you. He sent his son to die for you. He placed all of your sin upon his son Jesus. And in exchange, you were given his perfect righteousness. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God gave his precious son for you. And you did absolutely nothing to merit it. The only contribution you make to your salvation is the sin from which you're saved. You deserve nothing good, completely unworthy of any kindness. You've only earned and merited wrath and condemnation and judgment. And yet not only are you spared that, but you're adopted in Christ Jesus as God's child. That is God's amazing grace. Just like with David, right? It's not just past grace that we ought to be in awe of. It's also God's amazing grace future grace. And it's not just his future grace, but it's that he has graciously made us to know his future grace that we might, in faith, be confident of what is to come. How he's promised to keep us to the end. How he will never leave us nor forsake us. How he preserves us and he keeps us till the day that we will reach eternal glory with him. How his son has forever united himself to us. That we could no, no more be lost than the son of God be eternally cut off from his father. That's the confidence of Philippians chapter 1. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because he's told us so. 
Now, for those of you who are here this morning who've never experienced that amazing grace, well, let me say that the God of grace stands to save you today. If you would repent of your sins and place your trust in Christ, you too can be saved. And if you'd like to find out more about how you can be saved, what, what is this gospel that you're talking about? I invite you to the gospel presentation that I'm going to do at one o'clock uh, this afternoon in the side chapel over there. Uh, we'll go into detail uh, about what the gospel is. I would love nothing more than for, for you to be there. But brothers and sisters, those of us who have believed this gospel, when we rightly think about God's amazing grace towards us, how can we not be left awestruck like David is here? Who am I? Oh, Lord God. What more can I say? We sang a hymn this morning that I think gets at the same heart of amazement at God's grace. And some of us, we're just so familiar with the lyrics that, that maybe the, the, the sense of, of wonder and amazement that they are trying to portray can kind of get lost. And so uh, I just want you to listen once again to these words that we've already sang. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Well, friends, when our hearts are growing cold towards the gospel, like when we just kind of feel done being overwhelmed by God's grace, when we begin to lose that amazement and, and that wonder that God would send his son to die for us, Wretched sinners like us? Oh, how we need to be very quick to repent. We need to ask God for, for eyes to see the wonders of the gospel afresh. Show us anew. Oh, Lord God, show us anew the glories of Calvary. Point number two, David's amazement at God's grace. Which brings us to our third point. Let's look at David's appeal to God's promises. David's appeal to God's promises in this prayer. If you think about what David is asking in this prayer, and these are like incredibly bold requests. Look at verse 25. Now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken. Or look at verse 29. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. You think about it. These are like absurdly bold prayers. Uh, David, you want God to do something forever? Like we're, we're praying that we can find a parking spot. And here David is like, praying about forever. But if you think about it, as bold as these prayers sound, 
David is only praying that God would do what he's already promised him that he would do. Look again at verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. Yeah, David's prayer request sounds bold, but that's only because God's promises to him are so bold. David simply says, God, do as you have spoken. Or look at verse 29. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servants so that it may continue forever before you. Sounds bold. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David's confidence to pray such ridiculously bold things simply comes from what God has revealed to him. And that's exactly the point he's making in verse 27. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, that's why your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. You promised it. And that's why I have courage to pray this prayer to you. Like, these are such grand requests that I wouldn't even think of asking them of you unless you yourself had promised them. Or look at the logic in verse 28. And I know I'm really kind of like hammering the point home here, but that's only because David is really hammering this point home in this prayer. Look at what David says in verse 28. He establishes like a logical progression. Let's see if you can follow along here. And now, O oh Lord God, you are God. Right? So let's, let's just start with that truth. Premise number one, you are God. Then premise number two, keep reading in verse 28. Your words are true. God cannot lie. God is truth. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. And so premise number two, your words are true. So given that you are God and your words are true, now consider premise number three. You have promised this good thing to your servant. Referring to the grand promises from earlier in the chapter. Well, given those three premises, you're God, your words are true, and these promises are your words. Well, then the only logical conclusion that we can draw is that we ought to believe that which you've promised. And so David simply asks, in faith, for God to do what he's promised to do. Point number three, David's appeal to God's promises. Any of you who are parents, will, uh, you will be re- able to relate to what I'm about to say. Uh, in a moment of enthusiasm, you're like, hey kids, we're going to have an ice cream party tonight. You know how it is, though. The day gets long, and, and you get home, it's busy, you got to take care of things around the house, and before you know it, it's time for bed. Hey, Daddy, when are we eating ice cream? Well, it's getting late. But you know what always comes out of their mouth next? But Daddy, you promised. Ah. <laughs> you see, I want to be known as a father who keeps his word. I want my children to think of me as being trustworthy. And so when my children appeal to me based on the promises that I have made them, 
I don't care if it's 11 o'clock at night. I don't care if we've got dentist appointments tomorrow. We are going to have an ice cream party. Well, it's the same kind of logic that Jesus uses on the Sermon on the Mount. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If you who are untrustworthy and unfaithful and unreliable, if you will go out of your way to keep your promises to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven, who is trustworthy and is faithful and is reliable, how much more will he be pleased to keep his word? Brothers and sisters, what David is doing here is vitally important for us to notice. Because this is how we ought to pray. By appealing to God's own promises. Such prayer, prayer that asks God to do what he said he would do, such prayer is pleasing to God because Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And such prayer is praying in faith. It's believing God's promises. It's believing that God is going to keep his word and appealing to that. Appealing to the steadfastness and the faithfulness of God. Now that's not to say that we can only pray according to the promises of the Bible. But it's just to say that we ought to pray according to the promises of the Bible. And brothers and sisters, it's especially when the experience of our lives doesn't seem to match up with the promises of the Bible, that we then in faith pray the promises of God. Obviously, there's a, there's a whole bunch of heresies right, that have come about from uh, claiming promises out of context and distorting God's promises for uh, the sake of health, wealth, and prosperity. But such abuses should not prevent God's children from truly asking him to fulfill his word to us. Maybe you're panicking about secular trends and the culture around us. And you see that the church just seems so weak. And things are just spiraling out of control. And we worry about what's going to happen to God's church. And so we pray, Lord, you have promised in your word that you will build your church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it doesn't feel that way right now. But God, do as you have spoken. Or on a more individual level, just feel this incredible guilt and perhaps shame for something that we've done, our sin. Uh, sin that we've repented of, sin that we really hate, sin that we're just desperately trying to forsake. But it still haunts us and, and, and it hangs over us. And so we pray, Lord, you have said in your word that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have said in your word that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Please, Lord, bring about that which you have promised. Or we see our continuing struggle with sin and we're just like we're distressed by what seems to be a lack of sanctification, just kind of falling back into old patterns. And we pray, 
God, you have promised in your word to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. You've promised to conform me into the image of your son. You've promised to complete the good work that you've began in me. And so please, God, do as you have spoken. We experience persecution at work or with family or wherever. And it's so hard and it's just driven us to the point of despair. And so we pray, God, you have said in your word that even if we should suffer for righteousness sake, we will be blessed. Father, bless me in the face of this persecution as you have spoken in your word. Brothers and sisters, there is no more faithful way that you can pray than to simply pray that which God has already promised you. And there is no greater confidence that you can have in your prayers than to pray God's promises. Because we know that God always keeps his promises. That's exactly John's logic in 1 John chapter 5. This is the confidence we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Okay, how can we be sure that we are praying according to his will? Well, if we're praying according to the word of God. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. If we we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Point number three, David's appeal to God's promises. Number four, last but not least, we see in this prayer David's alignment with God's will. And so we've seen David's acknowledgement of God's greatness. Uh, We've seen David's amazement at God's grace. We've seen David's appeal to God's promises. And now we see David's alignment with God's will. What is God's ultimate desire? Like, what is at the pinnacle of his will? Is it not his own glory? That's why he ultimately does what he does. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. I act for the sake of my name, that I may be glorified. And we've seen, throughout our study of the life of David, we've seen over and over That he is indeed a man after God's own heart in this sense. He's a man who first and foremost cares about the glory of God. We saw that when we first met him in that battle against Goliath. His chief concern was that, quote, all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's. And we saw it most recently in 2 Samuel chapter 6. He dances before the Lord with all his might when the ark is being brought into Jerusalem without a care in the world as to who was judging him. We see it so clearly in so many of the Psalms that he writes. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. David is a man who throughout his life Not always, and and certainly not perfectly, but throughout his life, aligned himself with God's will, that God's name be glorified. That's God's primary concern, and that's David's primary concern 
And we see that further illustrated even in this prayer. Look at verses 25 and 26. Now, Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever. Saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Your name will be magnified forever. God, keep your promise, do as you have spoken, because in doing so, you're going to demonstrate your faithfulness, your truthfulness, your reliability, and as a result, your name will be magnified forever. God, establish my house. Bring about the Messiah from my line, because in doing so, you will save your people, and as a result, your name will be magnified forever. God, accomplish your purpose to bless your people in Christ to the praise of your glorious grace, Ephesians 1, so that your name will be magnified forever. Point number four, David's alignment with God's will. Brothers and sisters, this ought to be at the heart of the center of the middle of the bullseye of all of God's children. A heart aligned with God's desire for his own glory. Just think about the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this. Jesus said, this is how God's people ought to pray. How does it begin? Hallowed be thy name. In other words, your name be magnified forever. And how does it end? Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In other words, your name be magnified forever. So let me just ask, as we close, does that describe your prayers? Do you, in your prayers, eagerly seek the glory of God? Or is it basically all about you? What you want, what you need, what you desire. Now, it's not wrong to ask for those things, of course, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Praise God, you should look to God and God alone as the hand that gives you every single good gift. But if it ends there, like if that's all there is to our prayers, then we're missing God's ultimate will and desire. And as a result, your prayers are a lot less deep and a lot less bold and a lot less scriptural than they ought to be. Friends, God's ultimate will is not that you would have everything that you want. God's ultimate will is not that you would be comfortable or at ease or filled and warmed even. God's ultimate will is the glory of his name. And as his children... We must, right? Like David here, we must. As those after God's own heart, we must be aligned with him in seeking first that glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Father, we pray that this word that you have spoken to us through Second Samuel would indeed pierce our hearts, that you would grant conviction and repentance 
where your people need it. Father, that you would grant growth and grace that we might be more conformed to the image of your son. Father, we pray that we would be people who cherish the promises of your word and pray the promises of your word because we truly in faith believe that you will bring about that which you have promised. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.